I was born in a little town called Hope, Arkansas. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Yeah! Welcome to Campaign Context, an interdisciplinary election podcast. My name is Oscar Winberg. I am a PhD candidate in history at Obo Academia University, working on modern American political history. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the John Morton Center for North American Studies at the University of Turku. In this episode, I am joined by Professor Benjamin Waterhouse, and we will be talking about the history of lobbying and corporate interests. Waterhouse is an associate professor in history and a Grower scholar at the University of North Carolina. He graduated with an A.B. from Princeton University and received his Ph.D. in history from Harvard University. Waterhouse is the author of Lobbying America, The Politics of Business from Nixon to NAFTA, and the forthcoming The Land of Enterprise, A Business History of the United States, from Simon & Schuster. His work has also appeared in the Journal of American History and the edited collection What's Good for Business, Business and American Politics Since World War II. I'm happy to welcome you to Campaign Context, Professor Waterhouse. Thanks. Glad to be here. So one of the most interesting aspects of the 2016 campaign was the relationship between business and politics, making your book something of required reading for understanding the election historically. Uh, On the one hand, Donald Trump was a businessman representing business. On the other hand, he campaigned against business, casting Hillary Clinton as the business insider. But I want to go back to the 1970s, where your book starts with could arguably be said to be the end of the New Deal order. And how did corporate interests gain ground over this decade? And, and why didn't they gain that ground sooner? Well, yeah, so there's two, there's kind of two questions, right? Why did it happen then and why didn't it happen um, sooner? You know, I think the um, the way to sort of contextualize why, uh, why business lobbying and business sort of political organization got more organized in the 1970s uh, is that is sort of to see it at the confluence of three um, three intersecting trends or, or, or phenomena. Um, one is the macro economy, one is uh, the regulatory state, and the other and the third is the um, the sort of broader political culture. Uh, so the the argument that I try to set up in, in lobbying America is that it's it's when these things three things kind of intersect that there's a uh, sort of a, a perfect storm for, for business leaders and they, uh, you know, individual men, uh, leaders of major companies, the leaders of, of big trade associations, uh, kind of explicitly call out these three things uh, as, as the, the things that incite them to action. Um, so, you know, there had been many gestures uh, toward kind of putting together some sort of a business movement Further, you know, earlier in history, um, most maybe emphatically during the Great Depression, um, you know, when the when the Roosevelt administration started to shift uh, in a more leftward direction in about 1934 or 1935, when it started to uh, embrace what would ultimately become the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, which kind of put gave uh, labor unions pride of place in um, policymaking, and when it embraced the Social Security Act. Um, that was a moment when a lot of business leaders said, oh, we, we have to strike back. We have to fight back. And, and they tried. Um, they had, you know, sort of mixed results, I think. The difference in the 70s um, was, as I said, it was those three 
kind of those three factors the um the the decline of the growth economy you know the the you, you described the 70s as the uh, sort of end of the new deal order another way you can describe the 70s is the end of the post-war growth order mm. uh, this is the the time when the sort of and it you know in, in, it happens in europe it happens in um in the united states uh in similar ways so the the economic stagnation inflation um recessions these kinds of things de and a sort of a productivity crisis all kind of destabilize um the business world in a way that in the 50s and 60s uh they they hadn't felt that destabilized business leaders felt often you know very um maybe not appreciated in the earlier periods or um they certainly had kind of hostile run-ins with federal policymakers uh, in earlier periods but in by by the 70s there was that sort of material um material undergirding that that uh that mobilized that helped them mobilize um but the other thing that they really point to uh and i and i i found you know that this was really kind of compelling evidence a greater number of of business people started to see this sort of cultural um antipathy to business as something that was really um unique uh, historically unique and uh, profoundly worrying um, they, they saw the countercultural movement, for example, or student protests um, as, as deeply uh, worrying. They, inter they saw this sort of what they thought was an anti-capitalism or anti-business uh, bias. Um, and of course, you know, business people had always complained that students or protesters or radicals or labor uh, people were you know, anti-business. Um, so where this all kind of comes together is when uh, this this concern for or this sort of politics of uh, pushing back against business interests manifests in actual policy. Uh, and so the the kind of critical thing that I think distinguishes the early 70s from earlier periods is the growth of um, the regulatory state through the late 1960s, uh, particularly movements like the environmental movement, uh, the consumer rights movement, and to a certain degree, the labor movement. Um, that wasn't really new to the scene and it wasn't really making enormous strides in the 60s, but it was really the other two. It was really the environmental politics and the consumer rights politics that started to really you know, raise the alarm among a lot of these business uh, leaders. And you know, my, my argument is that all those three things working together um, kind of create the environment in which new organizations form, think tanks, lobbying groups, uh, and older ones sort of get a bolt of, of new energy um, and increase their memberships, increase their lobbying activities. In some cases, they move to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for the first time, and they start sort of playing a much more active role in day-to-day -day, uh, politics in, in the nation's capital. So the 1970s then, post-Nixon, uh, post-Watergate, emerges as this decade of tumult and, and Jimmy Carter's Malay speech where he doesn't actually mention Malay, but it captures the late 70s. There's oil crisis, there's the defeat in Vietnam lingering. Out of this then emerges someone like Ronald Reagan in the election of 1980, who's emphatically on the side of business. Uh, how did this sort of restructuring of business as something to stand by politically emerging in, in from this conflict 
Well, I mean, I think it's it's complicated. You know, there there's a, a sense in which Reagan was a, a very um, standard you know, conservative Republican who uh, reflected the interests of business. But there's also a lot of ways in which he he wasn't, you know, within the Republican Party and within if you look, for example, at the um, the Republican primary in 1980, Reagan wasn't really the business candidate. Um, there were several other people who, who could have been or would have been the, the business candidate. Um, so John Conley uh, had been the, the governor of Texas. He was actually the guy who was sitting in front of John F. Kennedy um, when Kennedy was killed and was hit by a bullet as well. Um, he was a Democrat then, uh, then when he becomes Nixon's treasury secretary in the early 70s and switches parties. He was the business guy. Um, and if not him, then it would have been George H.W. Bush um, in that primary. So Reagan has a, a sort of interesting relationship with the most powerful and sort of well-heeled, uh, politically interested elements of, of corporate America. They're, um, once he wins the primary, he's, he's their choice, right, just on the grounds of his basic economic policies. But, but I think before that, um, there's, some, there's some concern among, among business leaders that some of, you know, some of, of, of Reagan's specific policies um, would actually cut against the things that they were most uh, interested in. And at that point, it was things like um, fiscal conservatism. You know, the, 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 what, what distinguished Reagan in the primary was the extent to which he promised to cut taxes. Um, Bush and, and, and Connolly and everybody else agreed that, that taxes should be lower, but they didn't always agree on um, know, who should pay fewer taxes and, and what, uh, what do you do if you, can, if you can't cut the budget enough to uh, to stay in balance when you have a, a smaller tax base, um, and Reagan emphatically didn't care. I mean, he just insisted that he could cut social spending, raise uh, spending on the military because he you know, ran as a very aggressive kind of cold warrior, and really really reduce uh, income taxes on corporations and individuals by a lot. Um, and then it would all work out in the end. Um, you know, it was. Uh, it was George H.W. Bush who called that voodoo economics. Mm. Uh, and it was another Republican running in that, that year, John Anderson, um, who called it, you know, this is something that can only happen with, with blue smoke and mirrors. Um, and many people in the business community agreed with that. They said, look, you know, um, destabilizing the, the fiscal system uh, in the name of, uh, you know, kind of anti-government tax cuts is going to be bad for business. Uh, they, they certainly weren't happy with the way things look. So, they, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, I guess pushback against um, some of some aspects of, of Reagan's uh, of Reagan's policies in the especially in the early years of his administration. Right, and then when Reagan comes to Washington, there's of course still a quite large and strong liberal base in Washington D.C. Uh, it's not like conservatives just swept through Washington, taking over all the positions. Um, right. So with the politics changing in Washington to a degree, but not uniformly, and the global economy shifting during the 1980s, how did business interests adapt to these new possibilities, but also limitations? Well, I mean, one of the things that they that, that distinguished the 70s from the 80s from the perspective of uh, sort of business political activism is that it was a lot less unified. Uh, the fact that that somebody who broadly shared um, 
a business perspective in Reagan, even if they quibbled about the details. But the fact that he was in charge, uh, you know, signaled uh, to, to business leaders that maybe they could they could get you know everything they wanted. Um, and they quickly realized that they didn't agree on what they wanted. Uh, there were intense arguments uh, between industries. There were intense arguments over uh, over tax policies and even between groups on a more personal level. There are times when, you know, one association like the National Association of Manufacturers uh, feels like it's it's kind of ostracized or cut out of uh, White House meetings because uh, the people from the Chamber of Commerce are getting, uh, you know, are getting preferential treatment. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, there's just there's a great amount of fragmentation uh, among the corporate lobbyist world. At the same time, you also, this is the exact moment when the lobbying industry itself becomes much, much more professionalized. Uh, the period I was describing earlier in the 70s and, in, and even in the 60s and before, and a lot of the major players were these big business associations, things like the Chamber of Commerce or um, so on. By the 80s, you, you really have this mushrooming of individual law firms uh, and individual lobbying firms who are hiring out their um, their talent, who are business insiders or uh, people with public relations experience, to specific clients. And so they're, they're starting to negotiate over, um, you know, specific appropriations or specific um, policies that have much narrower uh, reach than some of the things that business groups had, had lobbied against in the uh, in the 10 years before. Uh, so, you know, in a way, this is this is there's an argument uh, associated with the um, historian Daniel Rogers that the post-1980 period can be described as an age of fracture, whether it's sort of intellectual or philosophical. And in this case, in, in the in the context of, of lobbying, it, it also applies. Um, there's a, there's a fragmentation or a fracturing um, and there's less of a kind of consensus about what it means to be um, pro-business, particularly among the business people themselves. So is it during this period of popularization of the lobbyists that lobbying in itself becomes this almost villain-like activity in D.C., uh, where business, and especially perhaps business, pulls the decisions to their side against sort of the, the will of the people through these professional means? Well, it's... Yeah, in a way, I think, but there's there's also a sense in which um, you know lobbying has always been something that m many Americans sort of consider to be a dirty word. Um, there was, and I don't think there was ever a time when that wasn't the case. Most of the time, when people think of of lobbying, they do think of you know, business lobbying, and that's true whether you're talking about the railroads in the 1880s or whether you're talking about know, the Teapot Dome scandal of the 1920s. Um, but you know, the, the truth is that lots of organizations have lobbyists uh, and, you know, the teachers unions have lobbyists and nurses have lobbyists and the Girl Scouts have lobbyists. So, you know, it, there's a lot of uh, it's hard to say that, you know, the, the, the animus toward the whole concept emerged at any one period of time. Um, what, what does happen gradually over the course of the 90s and then especially in the last 15 years or so um, is the. Uh, the, maybe some of the, the older dynamics within party politics um, stopped operating the way they had in the previous many decades. Um, as the parties became more ideologically 
coherent and, and sort of sorted themselves out. Uh, a lot of the compromise or the you know vote switching stopped, uh, and you so as late as the Reagan administration, you would have a huge amount of sort of uh, debate over how many Democrats can Reagan get to support his program in the House, for example, or how many Republicans can be persuaded, you know, one way or the other. Um, this sort of big sort that we've seen in the last couple of generations, by the time you get to the, the, the 90s and the 2000s, means that there's very little kind of wiggle room between, um, you know, between party line and how people vote. Uh, and that maybe sort of exposed the role of lobbyists uh, a bit more. Okay. Uh, so the shift away from an industrial economy, a shift that's been occurring for decades now, became a focal point of both Donald Trump's and, and Bernie Sanders' campaigns in 2016. Um, right. But this was also the result of the politics of globalization during several decades. Uh, and a part of this became the question of labor unions and businesses targeting labor unions. Now, naturally, this goes back to before there even was labor unions in the United States. Uh, but how did the politics of globalization co or the relationship between globalization and labor unions and their weakening in the United States, how much of this comes back to, to the question of business interests? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an important point. You know, there are elements within the business community that have pushed back against the very concept of organized labor from the beginning. And at the same time, throughout the 20th century, there was also uh, a, a sense of accommodation, you know, for much of it. I think you can point to the late 70s as the, the sort of time when these um, – when these things kind of came to a head, you know, there's a there's an episode uh, in the late 1970s when uh, Jimmy Carter has become president. Democrats control both houses of Congress and the labor movement sees an opportunity to try to strengthen some of its uh, sort of positions uh, with regard to national labor law. Uh, it doesn't go as far as to try to uh, undo the last sort of major conservative labor law, which was the Taft-Hartley Act in the 1940s, uh, that establishes the, um, the concept of the right to work uh, that state law that state uh, legislatures can pass. It, so in the 70s, they're not trying to quite push back against that, but they're trying to kind of strengthen the National Labor Relations Board and, and just generally sort of shore up um, labor's negotiating position. From the perspective of the labor movement, it's a fairly modest ask. Um, they don't think of it as a particularly uh, aggressive campaign. In, certain, in fact, there are plenty of people within the labor movement who think, no, we should be going straight after this whole right to work provision. And we should we should make sure that, you know, um, states cannot allow companies to, to have these um, sort of anti-union policies. Um, but but they, they pursue a fairly modest um, path and. Nonetheless, this now kind of emboldened and organized business movement pushes back extremely hard. Uh, and they have a massive uh, lobbying campaign. They have a Senate filibuster. Uh, and they ultimately kill this labor law reform package in, in 1978. And that sends a signal to organized labor that 
um, you know, the, the, the executives and the, and the business association leaders have no interest in um, sort of accommodating the basic premises of, of uh, industrial democracy and, and, and the, the uh, sort of accepted consensus around the existence of, of, of unions. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's a fairly, there's a major blow up uh, over this and, and the, the hostilities are, are very real. So what you see from this is that, you know, labor continues to be this kind of object of, uh, of attack from, from business, uh, organized business groups, which you know, ultimately is, is part of the, the weakening of, um, of the labor movement in the United States. Happening at exactly the same time is a sort of shift in industrial dynamics. Uh, there's, there's an internal movement of, um, of sort of where factories are located, a shift of, of, of capital within the country, and then there's also a shift outside of the country. Uh, so, you know, the, by the 1970s and 1980s, most union strongholds were in places in the north uh, and in the upper Midwest. As the Sun Belt region of the country developed economically, uh, industries moved there, uh, and often these were under-unionized or, or non-union uh, types of industries. Now, a non-union type of industry could be uh, a manufacturer, but it also could be something in sort of the knowledge economy, right? The uh, high-tech world of pharmaceuticals and, and things of that nature. Um, and as they spread into the South and the Southwest, uh, those are places where uh, opponents of unionism had been really successful ever since the 1940s at sort of keeping unions um, weak and, and, and more or less at bay. Um, all of which gets to your, you know, your question about the um, about the 80s um, and 90s, because you know by by this time uh, labor has is is quite uh, is quite weak, and the economy is um, kind of continued this long trend away from manufacturing employment, um, and even the manufacturing employment that exists in many places is uh, is ununionized. So then, coming into the 1990s. Uh, there's a move on uh, um, within the Democratic Party towards adopting some of the Republicans' um, sort of standings towards business and corporate interests. And during this, not only during this election season, but during the last decade, there's been a lot of talk about and debate of the neoliberalism of Hillary and Bill Clinton in particular, but broadly the democratic party uh, right can you talk about the history of this development within the democrats and the role of business within the party and and how we get to the position where we're today where somebody like cory booker otherwise seen as a promising star of the democratic party is derailed within the party for being too close to, to the business interests yeah right I mean, I think the way to sort of think about this story is, uh, in, in part, it's generational. Uh, the generation of, of Democrats that come of age in the 1980s are the baby boomer generation. That's, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton are, are great examples of this. And, you know, these are folks who, uh, I mean, in the, in the case of the Clintons, were quite on the left when they were young. Um, 
they well, Hillary Clinton had this whole transition from from being a Goldwater supporter as a teenager to being, uh, you know, sort of a McGovern campaigner by by the early 70s. Um, but, you know, these were folks who considered themselves part of the student movement and part of the anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, were, were, were people of what they considered the the, the left. Uh, Bill Clinton, as sort of governor of Arkansas, um, started adopting more centrist policies on a number of issues. Uh, and his, you know, he explains it as uh, a matter of a practical necessity. And he just, you know, this he was successful because he was sort of moderate um, in a lot of ways. But it's also, as I said, a, a sort of a generational thing. As these folks are kind of coming of age in the 1980s, they're looking at their party um, being run by the older generation, the generation of, of the Ted Kennedys and, and, and Tip O'Neill's um, losing. And they're and they're looking at them. You know, Reagan is resoundingly reelected in 1984 uh, and then his vice president wins the presidency in 1988. And so by by the late 80s, a lot of these young Democrats are thinking um, that the, the old uh, sort of union centric, um, you know, uh, strong welfare state, uh, strong government program style of, of New Deal liberalism um, is a loser and, it, and, it, and it's not going to not going to work. So people start writing about the new Democrats and they start mentioning people like Clinton or like Al Gore or like Gary Hart um, or Bill Bradley. You know, some of these people who are youngish in the in the mid to late 80s. Um, and, you know, interestingly, some of them call them new neoliberals. Some of them, some people call them new Democrats. Some people call them neoliberals um, without any of the sort of ideological baggage that I think neoliberalism has when we when we use it today or when we use it in a more globalized context. Uh, but the uh, you know, the central idea here, Bill Clinton calls it the third way. Uh, and it's all kind of referring to the same idea, which is that we don't need to see political economy as this harsh struggle between um, business and, 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 and labor, um, or between governments, you know, welfare state government and free enterprise. Rather, we can see this as a collaborative thing where there's sort of common sense regulations. And this is the term that everyone loves to use, right? If it's common sense, how could you disagree with it? Um, you know, it, we will find these sort of moderate paths. Um, and it seems to be by the nineties, uh, validated, you know, Clinton wins the presidency in 92 and is reelected in 96. Tony Blair is the prime minister in England, you know, by the end of this. And, and it's, it all seems, um, like this third way politics really has, um, broken the back of both kind of ardent, you know, labor liberalism on one hand and, and staunch free market conservatism on the other. Um, from the outside perspectives, particularly from the perspective of the left, um, this is a sellout, right? This is a total cave to um, the exploitative interests of capitalism. And, and as a consequence, it has abandoned the neediest or the most uh, marginalized people in society. So the critique of neoliberalism is that applying these kind of market-friendly attitudes uh, is great if you're in the top or even in the middle of the top or the top of the middle. But if you're in the bottom, uh, you're facing underfunded schools, you're facing wage stagnation, you're facing an opposition to the minimum wage, um, or you're facing, you know, another thing that comes out of this is this notion of a, of a prison industrial complex where the number of people incarcerated goes up and suddenly we're applying a profit motive to, um, to the penal system. 
Um, so, you know, the social costs of uh, kind of accepting a greater faith in markets or a faith in business to do uh, things that are in society's interests appear to be uh, very, very stark. It's a left wing critique, um, I think, for the most part, but there's sort of a fringe kind of libertarian uh, right wing critique of it as well. Uh, and, you know, you, we see an inkling of this in some of the Ross Perot um, successes in the in the early to mid 90s. Um, you know, that there's this kind of collaboration between the state and um, and the corporate world is uh, is hurting our people. Right. So what makes it a right wing critique is that sort of isolationism or nationalism or, um, you know, the sense that the, the, the people who are getting hurt by this are, 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 are the, <laughs> the good people you know, sort of tinged with with a sort of racist exclusion, uh, exclusionism. Um, and then that, of course, you know, is part and part is integral to what uh, the Trump campaign capitalizes on, uh, you know, in the last year and a half. So you mentioned Ross Perot, and I, I want to talk about the fact that, curiously enough, one of the main issues of the 2016 campaign was the NAFTA agreement, which dates back to the 1990s, and which right. actually was an agreement that was negotiated during Bush and then signed by Clinton, making it bipartisan in nature in the way of, of the presidency as well. And at that time, it's Ross Perot who comes out against it with that memorable quote about a great sucking sound when businesses right. leave the United States. Uh, now, Donald Trump and Ross Perot share some characteristics. Um, billionaires coming from outside politics, adapting something of a populist rhetoric. Um, can you talk about, elaborate more on NAFTA and what role that played in, in this pr process? Yeah, well, um, yeah. So you, what you said about NAFTA is is right. It was negotiated uh, by the Bush administration with the governments of Canada and, and Mexico. Um, and it's important to note historically this is this is a moment across the world of uh, emerging market of, of growing market integration. This is the same period of time within a couple of years that the EU is formed in, in the sense that it exists uh, has existed since then. So the, the notion of encouraging trade of reducing barriers um, both on an economic and a sort of cultural and, and philosophical level is, is is quite prominent the walls fall down right the berlin wall is down the iron curtain is over and, and we're sort of moving toward this uh sense of, a, of an integrated global society um and and there's pushback against that um nafta you know has its critics from from the right and from the left um the critics from the left, some of them point to, to issues related to, to jobs, um, but a lot, especially in the sort of um, what's by then the, the, the sort of the, the, the new Democrat side of the, of the American left, um, point to the environmental consequences. Um, so there's, the, the criticisms of NAFTA coming from the Democratic Party uh, are, you know, that it's imbalanced, that uh, it's going to... If, if manufacturing moves to Mexico, for example, from the United States, we will be less successful at regulating its environmental impact. Um, we will be less successful at um, at making sure that workers are well compensated, taken care of, and safe. You know, that labor laws are respected. Um, so th those are the criticisms coming from the, the Democratic Party. Um, 
Bill Clinton himself has to kind of wrestle with all of this. You know, he doesn't get campaign for NAFTA in 1992. He basically stays out of it and lets Bush and Perot argue about it for the whole campaign. Once he's president, he kind of owns it. So one of the, the beautiful little ironies in this whole thing is a year into the Clinton presidency, it's Al Gore who has to go on CNN, the vice president then, and debate um, the merits of NAFTA with, with Ross Perot in the final hours of, of getting uh, Senate approval. Um, the critique that's coming from the Perot campaign is less concerned with environmental factors or with um, labor rights as much as a very sort of nationalistic idea of uh, of jobs themselves and uh, and the and the sort of nativist dire consequences of open borders. Um, now, there's a way in which Perot dodges the worst of that and leaves it to people like Pat Buchanan to really make this um, sort of uh, more overtly xenophobic and, and uh, anti-global uh, right-wing argument against against NAFTA. Um, but the argument that Perot makes is, as you said, the giant sucking sound. It's, it's going to hurt American workers. It's going to by by enriching American companies. The irony of, of this coming from you know a billionaire businessman is uh, is profound. Um, and it's exactly the same irony that, you know, you see in, in the Trump campaign, which made exactly the same arguments uh, for exactly the same reasons. Um, you know, that NAFTA is a uh, profound sort of political football, I think, in American politics. But there's really no consensus on um, exactly what it's done. Um, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of there have been changes in the American economy. Um People disagree on how much to, to pin it on any specific trade agreement. Um, there's a lot of work being done now that's saying, you know, all of the stuff that we're saying about how all the jobs went to China or all the jobs went to Mexico is not particularly accurate um, because what has happened in the manufacturing sector is um, that the, the, the work that used to be done by people is now done by machines. Um, so the automation is the driving reason that we don't have um, you know, low skill manufacturing jobs as the same to the same degree that we used to, um, which really is not a, a function of, of a of a trade deal at all. It's a technological issue. Right, right. Uh, so Donald Trump made his campaign very much on populist rhetoric against Wall Street and most particularly against Goldman Sachs which became sort of this bête noir of not only the left, but the right as well in the 2016 yeah. campaign. Uh, this shift where the right sort of disowns Wall Street and firms like, like Goldman Sachs, how much of this is, is the remains of Buchanan, the remains of Ross Perot, and how much of this is Tea Party, Libertarian, or maybe even sort of a Huckabee-esque uh, evangelical populism. Well, there's, there's, a, I think there's a lot of things going on, um, and and I think when you talk about Goldman Sachs in particular, um, I don't think you can escape the latent anti-Semitism that's wrapped up in this, uh, in this sort of critique from the right. And there are 
there are people who claim a kind of plausible deniability about this, but I think if you put this in the long historical um, perspective, there, there's always been, uh, well, so let's say since the 1890s, uh, a, a palpable hostility toward Eastern financial elites. Uh, and this is the phrase that people like William Jennings Bryan would have invoked 120 years ago. Um, that's not to say everybody who is, you know, part of that criticism is the making self-consciously an anti-Semitic uh, campaign, but that has also fueled overt anti-Semitism um, throughout, you know, the same period of time. And so there's something about the the otherness or the um, the, the the scheming nature of the moneylenders that is integral to um, a part of this of this campaign of this push against um, against Wall Street banks in general and um, and Goldman in particular sort of uh, maybe because of its name it seems to resonate with with people in, in a particular way um, so you know that's there's part of that in that sort of Pat Buchanan nativism. Um, a lot of the critique is, uh, you know, comes straight out of the recent financial crisis. Um, the Tea Party, interestingly, was much more interested in its early years in, in blaming um, homeowners and blaming, you know, individual people for the collapse of the housing market than it was blaming the banks. One of the big cleavages between the way, say, Elizabeth Warren um, would would understand and and, uh, and cast blame for the financial crisis and the way you know, Tea Party people would is 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 on the role of the big institutions. Um, so the left wing crit critique of the banks has to do with uh, with risk and with greed uh, and with sort of a, a a failure of regulation. The right wing critique on the financial crisis is you know individual homeowners made bad decisions. Um, particularly, the wrong kind of people were getting loans, and so again, you can see this sort of overladen with. Uh, often a racially tinged or a class inflected um, bias against against people. Um, I think what the Trump campaign was able to do by was, was sort of pull a little of all of that together and capture the, the, the outrage of people who maybe lost their home or maybe lost their job or just you know suffered through the Great Depression and the Great Recession um, and are infuriated that there are these really, really, really rich people um, gallivanting around Manhattan. Now, the fact that Donald Trump is one of them uh, is just another irony in this entire story. But you know, I think I think he was vague enough in his uh, denunciation of why Goldman was the problem um, that enough people kind of you know got on board with it because it, it comes from all sides. Right, right. So with Donald Trump now in the White House, we've seen corporations scrambling to adopt to a literal bully pulpit, especially in, in terms of economic policy and, and corporations from Carrier earlier in, in late 2016 and now recently Nordstrom's. At the right. same time, there's these demands from a large segments of consumers to distance them, who want the companies to distance themselves from the administration. And, and we've seen examples of this as well. Would it be safe to say that business is more politicized than ever, perhaps, at this moment? Well, yeah. Well, I think what it, what it suggests is that business is an inherently fractured category. It's very unusual, historically, for business to have 
any sort of coherent identity or set of interests. So in the examples that you've just given, there's a number of um, competing interests at stake. If you are a major defense corporation and you do a lot of business with the federal government, it would be not in your interest to anger the person who's running the federal government, uh, especially uh, somebody who is so demonstrably incapable of letting the slightest, you know, uh, slight go go un, unchallenged. Uh, somebody who holds grudges, somebody who's you know, so petty and thin-skinned about everything. Um, so you'd have to tread very carefully uh, if you're if you're a major government contractor. On the other hand, if you are a consumer-facing company and far and away your uh, clientele is socioeconomically uninclined to support Donald Trump, um, you have very little to lose by uh, by pushing back against him. Uh, Nordstrom is a great example of this. The, you know, Nordstrom's a fairly high-level um, shopping or you know store. Uh, the, the the stereotypical Trump supporter is probably not shopping at, at Nordstrom all that much, whereas the stereotypical Trump hater uh, is more likely to. Uh, and and so you know, it, it's an interesting decision. It's possible. I don't know. I don't have any inside knowledge on how you know Nordstrom makes its decisions or TJ Maxx or any of the other companies that have been talking about this recently. But um, some of it may be principled. Uh, on on the part of the uh, on the part of the leadership of the company, but a lot of it is also the fact that they really don't have as much to lose um, by sort of going taking you know get, getting into a publicity war with with the president who is so shockingly unpopular. Mm. Um, you know it's 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 really striking um, because you know throughout earlier periods in history you wouldn't see this level of um, political engagement from um, from corporations, whether they're business to business or government contractor or defense co companies or consumer companies. Um, you know, the, the, the book I wrote about the lobbying groups in the 1970s, um, you know, one, one interesting facet of this whole thing is when, when they're getting mobilized around inflation, they're getting mobilized around the deficit, they don't talk about Vietnam ever. They do not want to take a stand on the war because you can't win. Right. If, if, if you've got a country that's, you know, 50 percent vehemently opposed and 50 percent strongly in favor, you can't you can't win that fight. Right. So they don't go anywhere near Vietnam. They don't go anywhere near civil rights um, collectively. Of course, there are individual companies that you know, take different right. stands. Um, and so, you know, there's this the, the fact that a company is willing to just sort of. So blatantly um, demonstrate its lack of respect and, and lack of uh, appreciation for the for the administration is, is pretty remarkable i think on that note we'll, we'll wrap this up um i want to thank you for your time professor waterhouse and i want to remind everybody to keep an eye out for professor waterhouse coming book the land of enterprise the business history of the united states out this spring uh, his first book is called lobbying america the politics of business from nixon to nafta please visit the campaign contact website at www.campaigncontact.com wordpress.com for links to the books. There's also previous episodes on subjects such as the history of the Democratic Party, Pivotal Tuesdays, and the Trump Syllabus 2.0. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help us out by spreading the word to friends and colleagues. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes.
You'll find links for this and more on the homepage. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.